Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. In the summer of 2020, 26 million people went to the streets to support Black Lives Matters, making it the largest protest movement in U.S. history. Virtually all demonstrations were peaceful, with no destruction of property or injuries to participants or police. And when the protests did involve vandalism, it was usually caused by a small group of people not affiliated with the peaceful protesters. But the conservative media was consumed with BLM depicting the movement as subversive, criminal, and showing video loops of black people rioting in any segment where the racial justice activists were discussed. And it wasn't just the right-wing media that was obsessed. The FBI infiltrated local activist groups, tried to entrap members with bogus gun-running charges, and conducted unconstitutional searches of phones and computers. You can't make this stuff up. Let's discuss this with the investigative reporter who broke the story. I'm looking forward to this podcast. Uh, Trevor Aronson, glad to have you with us today. You're an award-winning investigative journalist. I guess you got the awards with this book here, The Terror Factory, is about a 10 years, 10 years uh, ago, and your subsequent uh, great press regarding this book, and you reissued this with a very good... Uh, uh, update to it. We can chat a little bit about that. But I want to talk to you also about your podcast, which was the Alphabet Boys. And as a journalist, you um, write books and do audibles, but this podcast is kind of a new format for journalists. Tell us how you got involved with that. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, we've seen a, a movement in the last few years of longer form journalism happening in podcasts. And this was never something that uh, I, I planned for, you know, my, my first show had to do with this American who had joined ISIS and was communicating with me through voice memos. And because of the format of that, it just made sense to do it as a podcast. And that that was a show called American ISIS on Audible. And it was a, as a result of doing that show that I realized that, you know, longer form podcasts, and I, and I want to be clear, I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, who listen to podcasts think podcasts can only be like interview shows. And and the stuff we're doing is um, kind of highly produced and, and in a single story told over eight or 10 episodes. And, and what I realized in doing the first show was that, um, you know, I, it really was this great vehicle to not only do in-depth reporting, but also to kind of show a level of transparency that's difficult in other medium to show like how the reporting is done and kind of bring listeners into the world I'm reporting in at the same time. So there's this kind of built-in transparency to the information and the reporting. And so with Alphabet Boys, you know, what we're seeing in, is the trend toward for narrative podcasts of kind of being, you know, a serialized, like every, every season is a different show, but on a similar topic. And so my, my reporting is really focused on this question of whether federal law enforcement, the FBI and other agencies through the use of sting operations are creating criminals or, or catching them. Mm -hmm. And Alphabet Boys is really meant to explore that quest question in different stories. So we have two seasons out now, one about an FBI case and the second about a DEA case that both look at this idea that whether 
you know, through the very aggressive use of sting operations, the FBI and other federal law enforcement agencies are are catching the very criminals they claim to be, uh, I'm sorry, are creating the very criminals that they claim to be uh, pursuing. And it, it is well produced. I mean, we, Greg and I have been doing this podcast for a couple of years, but when I listen to your Alphabet Boys, I, I literally binge the thing in, in a day and a half. I mean, I, I, I made excuses to go on long walks just to finish just to finish up your your podcast it was so well so well done and so engaging and it tells a story well let, let's just stop and go to what was going on in 2020 when we had the black lives matter protests probably the the largest the largest protest movement in u.s history 26 million people in the street and as a result of that, Trump is a Trump is a president. The FBI and Department of Justice is concerned that this these goings on, these protests, were nefarious, were being run by terrorists, were Phil has said, what was going sure. on? Yeah, and I, I think what would be helpful to just quickly, and we can talk about this in greater detail later if you'd like, um, you know, the perspective I was coming into the summer of 2020 from was having reported on the FBI over the previous decade and, you know, focusing on the FBI's counterterrorism program and its use of informants and its use of sting operations to find would-be terrorists, with the idea being that you know, they find someone who is vulnerable in some way, maybe a little bit mentally ill or financially desperate, and they offer the trappings for them to get involved in some sort of terrorism plot that on their own, they would not be able to get involved in. And then they're arrested and it's announced to the public as a terrorism plot foiled. And in the years after that, you can you could see this tactic migrating outside of kind of the, the, the more confining bounds of, you know, Islamist terrorism and, and counterterrorism operations. At the same time, you know, during Trump's first uh, year in office, the FBI came up with this term called black identity extremism, which was a response to the Ferguson unrest. And the FBI had come up with this theory that black political activism at its extremes was a, was a form of domestic terrorism and fell under the domestic terrorism rubric. And so when the the unrest is happening in the summer of 2020 following George Floyd's murder, you know, I really began to suspect that it was not it, it was not unreasonable to assume that the FBI would be using these tactics that I had refined in the 20 years of the war on terror against black political activists. And, you know, at that time, I'm sure you as others had heard all sorts of stories about questions of informants, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, press focused on the so-called umbrella man in Minneapolis who was busting out windows and suspicions that he was a federal agent of some sort. But there was never any proof that the feds had infiltrated the groups and were instigating violence of any sort. And I was trying to find a case that would show that if that really was happening. And through a source, I was provided about 20 hours of recordings and uh, about 300 pages of internal FBI records that showed how the FBI had done that in Denver. And they'd used a convicted felon, a violent felon named Mickey Windecker, paid him about $20,000 that summer. And Mickey went into the protest groups in Denver and encouraged violence and mm -hmm. also rose into a leadership position by using a lot of the same tactics that the FBI used during COINTELPRO in the 1960s. You know, one of the things that Mickey would do would be he'd identify the real leaders in the movement, many, many of whom were suspicious of Mickey. And he would tell the others that those people were snitches, those people were informants, kind of sowing distrust, 
And then in that kind of chaos, you know, you know, filling the leadership vacuum himself and then encouraging people to commit violence. And there was a spate of violent protests in Denver the last week of August that we can now point to and say Mickey Windecker was leading those protests and as a government agent was encouraging violence that resulted in scores of injuries against protesters, against police officers, and at the same time tried unsuccessfully to wrap two black activists into this supposed plot to assassinate the state's attorney general, which had they been in any way successful would have been, you know, front page news would have been, you know, a case of an example that the Trump administration was desperately looking for, which is this idea that black political activists during the unrest were somehow interested in committing, you know, horrific murders of public officials. And so, you know, in this particular case, what was particularly interesting was that not only was in many ways this a duplication of the efforts that we saw FBI informants use in COINTELPRO against Black political groups in the 60s, such as the Black Panther Party. But in many ways, this was um, a duplication of the tactics and powers that the FBI was given in the post 9-11 era. And, you know, just as a refresher, you know, when the Patriot Act was passed in 2002, a number of critics, the, the late Senator Russ Feingold among them, had pointed out and said, look, if you give the FBI all of this power, to pursue terrorists, it's not going to be long before these powers are focused on people you don't now consider terrorists. And I think that's what we're really seeing in the summer of 2020 is that these powers being applied against people that they were not intended to be applied for, at least when the laws were passed. Right. Um, let, let's get Greg involved with this. We're reading the book, the new book, King of Life uh, by Jonathan Eag. And it he, a lot of it is how the FBI was infiltrating the civil rights movement and the various groups and and in very nefarious ways and greg was then and still is now somewhat of a radical and um <laughs> and when we were looking reading your reading your book and listening to your podcast it was like well what's what's changed this is the same playbook i don't know greg what jump in what what am well, i well well I, I i have to correct you I, no. I am somewhat of a radical. I am a radical. I'm a proud <laughs> radical. I mean, Pat okay, is okay, somewhat, right, of a, somewhat of a liberal, and so <laughs> but I give him credit for being a consistent liberal. Give me credit for being a persistent and consistent radical. Okay. A Marxist-Leninist, okay? Now, that's okay. out of the way. Right. Yeah, I, I can't tell you how invaluable your work is because, at first, it's the tip of an iceberg. I mean, you can only show what you can show, and you've done a great job of, of coming up with things that are unimpeachable. They're right there in your face. So the doubters and the skeptics and others ha have to concede the FBI does these foul things. But it's a tip of the iceberg, but it's also a long history. It's not a new history. It goes back certainly maybe to the Espionage Act back in, in you know, in, in revolutionary times, uh, John Adams. But certainly it goes back until uh, the Red Scares in the post-World One area. It seems as though Every time they need to generate um, a scare, you know, after World War One, you had the, the Russian Revolution and the danger of Bolshevik, Bolshevism. So you have a red scare and the implement of that, the implementer of that, of course, are the security services. And then again, in 1945, after the victory over Nazism and the rise of communist parties throughout Europe, and strengthening of those parties and radicalism and the emerging anti-colonial movement. Again, fright, fright, scare. So they come back with a second red scare again. But it's a persistent and long, long thing. 
And to show that, in a sense, I would take the Black Lives Matter theme uh, about the police, abolish the police. I don't believe that. I don't think you can do that. But you can't abolish these security services or, or change them radically. But only if you understand that this is not an exception. This is not an aberration. This is not something they, they, they do occasionally. This is something they systemically do. They're going to, and, and, and I'll finish with this. Today, when you look at, um, at the uh, right, uh, the, the role of Comey, Comey did classically with Trump what, all, what JFK, JFK, JFK uh, uh, Hoover did in the past with presidents. Took Trump aside in January after his election and said, look, we've got stuff on you. Don't, don't mess around. Of course, Trump didn't listen. Trump's out of control and a wild man. But we all welcomed we all welcomed anything that pointed out all of his indiscretions and all his wrongs, but you got to remember the FBA will turn on anybody that challenges the power. And I think that's something that we get with, but again, I've, I've said all I really have to say, I've got it off my chest. So <laughs> back to you. <laughs> so you, 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 I guess you would agree with that. You have a Ted talk uh, 10 years ago where you, you know, talked about this in relationship to the Muslim threat. Um, and it's, it's, it's the same. I mean, it's. Yeah. I, mean, I think, yeah. I mean, I, I, as a quick aside, based on what Greg said, I mean, I, I do think we live in this very strange era um, as a result of the, uh, of Trump's election that, you know, I think the people who used to be skeptical of the FBI, that there's been this very strange shift where, you know, I think left and Democrats in general who may have been more skeptical of FBI and federal power are now kind of embracing the FBI in a way um, that was, you know, different than before um, and even unwilling to criticize them for reasons that they should be criticized for. While you have the right, you know, and Republicans who have traditionally been more of a law and order party very skeptical of the FBI uh, for re so sometimes for valid reasons, other times for not. Um, and you know, you have this kind of we live in this bizarre world where these allegiances have somewhat shifted, and that makes kind of criticizing the FBI for its targeting of of kind of left wing activists, which does happen far more often than right wing activists, kind of this area where not a lot of people want to talk about it, uh, like you saw in Jim Jordan's you know committee hearings on the weaponization of government. You know, instead of Democrats saying like, okay, you want to talk about weaponization, let's bring on all these people that were arrested as part of eco-terrorism scares 20 years ago. Let's bring on all these Muslims who were unfairly targeted in the war on terror. But there's none of that. There's this kind of this, well, if they're against the FBI, then then we're for it. And as a result, I think we're not really having a very, you know, honest conversation about FBI abuse of power. You know, I, I mean, in, in some ways, like they're this is a great time for another church style committee, but that's not at all what's happening um, on Capitol Hill. And, and, and to get back to your, your specific question, I mean, my, my, my read of what's happened in the post 9-11 era um, is that it, it has its genesis certainly in the FBI's more historical abuses going back to COINTELPRO and even before, as Greg mentioned. Um, but I think what you saw happen that made it a little bit different in the post 9-11 era is that you know after 9-11, there was this discussion of whether they should split the FBI into two agencies, an MI5, MI6 style setup, where one works on law enforcement and one works on intelligence. And Robert Mueller, then the FBI director, you know, had adamantly defended the FBI as a single institution and persuaded the Bush administration not to do that. And as a result, one of the things that has happened is that, you know, the functions of an intelligence agency, such as disrupting 
um, terrorism attacks, uh, finding spies, um, are, are then put into an agency that largely measures its success the way a law enforcement agency does, that how many people have you arrested, how many of those res resulted in prosecutions, how many resulted in convictions. And so when you see the FBI go and defend the reason it gets, you know, 60 some percent of its budget for counterterrorism, you know, they have to kind of give you metrics. So they will say, well, we arrested this person and we arrested this person and we arrested this person, even though disrupting terrorism plots really isn't that neat. Sometimes you just disrupt them and no one's really ever arrested. But FBI terrorism stings allow the FBI to find someone who might be incapable on their own and then give them the ability to commit an act of terrorism. Often that involves like giving them money, giving them weapons, and sometimes in the most egregious cases, even giving them the idea for the plot itself and then pushing them forward in that plot and then announcing to the public, hey, look at this terrorist that we've caught. And it has a couple of benefits for the FBI. One, it makes national news and exaggerates the threat of terrorism, which then encourages elected officials to spend money on terrorism, which keeps the money flowing to the FBI. Right. And then the second is that the FBI can go to Congress and say, this case, this case, this case, this is what your money bought. And no one's really having a very you know, good conversation on Capitol Hill about like, well, were these real terrorists? Did you disrupt these real plots? And I, I think you know what we've seen over the last 20 years is that through these use of sting operations, there's been an enormous exaggeration of the threat of terrorism from within Muslim communities in the United States. And so as just one example, when Donald Trump ran for president starting in 2015, you know, one, you know, one big part of his platform was, you know, the so-called Muslim ban. You know, he said, we need to stop immigration until we can figure out what's going on, right? And what Trump did very effectively was tap into this narrative that the Justice Department had created over the previous 15 years by arresting Muslim after Muslim and sting operations that the American public believed that there was this enormous threat that existed and that should be dealt with when in fact this was largely exaggerated through the use of very aggressive sting operations. And that goes to the Chinook Center in Colorado, getting back to your podcast. This was just a run-of-the-mill, progressive, mission-driven community space that empowers and connects people and grassroots organization for social, economic, environmental justice in the Pikes Peak area. They wanted rent control. They wanted, you know, it was a variety of things. Uh, I think the day that they had the all the arrest, I, it wasn't it uh, concerning the lifting of the rent control for COVID. You know, they, they it, it, and they have partially the right wing media portrays anytime you see a Black Lives Matter um, segment on cable, it's looping of rioting and people burning, and you know this is out of control. When the Pew organization said less than 3% of all of these enormous protests had any kind of property damage, and most of the property damage was by people that weren't in the protest groups. They were the ancillary people that were there ca causing, causing difficulties. But because of that, the FBI ended up putting an informant at the Chinook Center to monitor and report back what's going on to not only the D the FBI but also Colorado's police department. Um, yeah. yeah. So so in that that particular case, the the Colorado Springs investigation was 
uh, an offspring of the investigation that was happening in Denver, where the informant Mickey Windecker was working with the FBI. He informed the FBI of a, a gentleman who was involved in both Denver and Colorado Springs, nothing illegal, just involved in activism in both cities. And so the FBI working with this thing called the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which is a, a partnership between the FBI and local law enforcement. It exists in just about every metro area in the country. In Colorado Springs, there's a direct partnership between the FBI and the Colorado Springs Police Department. So the FBI went to the Colorado Springs Police Department and recruited a young detective named April Rogers, who effectively at that point became a deputy FBI agent, was being managed by the FBI. And they had her, you know, wear pink hair, kind of, you know, provocative clothing. She suggested she was a sex worker and she was there to volunteer on an, admi an administrative basis. And so the Chinook Center, which is, is about as innocuous as you can imagine, they don't they don't really, I mean, they clearly do not advocate violence. They are interested in housing rights and racial justice, and they're an activist group. And so the Chinook Center was just meant as a, as a nonprofit space where various activist groups could hold meetings. They could, you know, have their infrastructure like computers and membership rosters and, uh, and you know, just allow for a networking between these various activist groups. And for a year without having any criminal predicate, there was no reason to think anyone involved in the Chinook Center was involved in any sort of criminal activity. April Rogers went undercover. She was pulling information because given her administrative role, she was collecting information about people involved in activism, was feeding that back to the Colorado Springs Police Department and the FBI. And then they were also then asking a judge for warrants on communications between the Chinook Center's Facebook account and other people it was communicating with, um, as well as a search warrant for people related to the Chinook Center, all of which are now part of an ACLU lawsuit in, in Colorado Springs. But you know what, what's particularly troubling about this, this case specifically is that the FBI launched this investigation with no predicate, with no reason to think any anything was was going right, it was was any criminal activity was happening, reasonable suspicion, and this this is really an extension of a post 9/11 power called an assessment. So after 9/11, the FBI told Congress that you know we need to stop attacks, and so you know having a criminal predicate gets in the way. You know if we believe that someone might be committing violence, we need to know and investigate right away. So their excuse is to say like, well, if someone says calls up the FBI and says I saw this post on social media where this guy says he's going to bomb a high school. We need to be able to go to that guy's house and investigate right away. And so Congress authorized this power. And what we've seen is that power being abused in cases like this, where the, the FBI basically launches an assessment without any apparent risk to the public and just uses that as a basis to launch an investigation. And then once they're inside, they can find you know, thin basis for some sort of reasonable suspicion that they can then justify a larger investigation. And so, you know, this sounds like it's something out of the 60s, but it happened in 2020 and 2021, which is that for more than a year, an undercover detective working with the FBI had embedded herself as a volunteer in a political organization and was just collecting information and then feeding that back to um, to the FBI. I think it's I think I think there's continuity there. I, I, I mean, I I was showing Pat before. This is a Freedom of Information Act file for my my dearest friend for five years of his activism from 1964 to 1969. I mean, that's a huge volume of, of material. Here in Pittsburgh, there was a Peace and Freedom Center, much like the center that uh, you talked about in Colorado Springs. And the FBI monitored everything they did. And 
basically they they provoked things. There was an economics professor from the University of Pittsburgh that they focused on and tried to entrap and so on. So, and and then I think people thought with the church committee, all that ended. You know, they crawled back and, and then Hoover died and everything. It's just not true. I mean, my activism on the left, we've always had people around we thought were provocateurs. There were always people that showed up and disappeared, came and went, had no real background in the left or in the movement, but suddenly, you know, tried to grab leadership. But uh, uh, people forget. And I think the presumption is the FBI is your friend, where I think history teaches the presumption should be, no, they're not. They're not your friend. And I, I wonder what you think could be done. I mean, Truth and uh, Reconciliation Commission, what, what can you envision that could happen that could defang or, or tame these security services? Yeah, it's a great question. And like, you know, the the cop out for that is to say like, oh, I'm the journalist. I'm just here to document the abuses. <laughs> What's to be done is really up to someone else. Um, you know, but you don't know. I mean, it, you know, the discouraging part of this, obviously, is you're right. I mean, there was the church committee. There was an enormous report. The church committee had an enormous, you know, cultural impact. But did it really change the FBI? I mean, maybe in small ways in the short term. But as as you say, and I agree with you, there have been all sorts of abuses that were very similar to the abuses that were committed under Hoover during COINTELPRO that have that have continued forward. You know, I think part of the problem, especially in the post 9-11 era, is that the the amount of oversight from the legislative branch has basically been none, right? I mean, I think, you know, as as awful and as as one-sided as Jim Jordan's committee has been, it, at least it's a has at least one fang, right? Like for the most part, like the committees have been defanged in looking at the FBI at all. And I think it's because up until more recently, there was this feeling that, you know, if you were a congressman and you were looking at FBI abuses, it really puts you in a politically disadvantageous position because you didn't want to go home to your district and say, have your opponent be like, look at Jane Doe, she's weak on terrorism, criticizing the FBI. And it just became a very politically, you know, difficult place for a lot of politicians to be. And I think for, as a result of that, there really hasn't been significant oversight in, in any way. Um, I think, you know, we're seeing that change a little bit, but it's become more of a propaganda uh, purpose for the Republicans in trying to just make it seem that the FBI is not credible simply because it's investigating Donald Trump and his, his allies. Um, and then the second part, I think, is that, you know, the courts have just, you know, too often been willing to just allow the government to go with whatever it says, right? In many cases, when the government asserts national security privilege, the government will just say, okay, it's fine. We'll drop this case. You know, an example is, you know, there was widespread um, infiltration of the Muslim community in Southern California in the late 2000s. And the the, the informant involved, Craig Monte, came forward. Uh, CARE and the ACLU filed a lawsuit on behalf of a number of people on a class action basis who had been targeted and the government's response was basically like, well, look, we didn't abuse their rights, we promise, but we can't show you any documents proving that because that's protected by national security. And the district judge was like, okay, that sounds good. You know, case dismissed, right? And, you know, it, it went, fortunately, it went before the Supreme Court and has been kicked back to the district court to figure out how to move the case forward. But I think you see that in a lot of cases where, you know, there's just a deferential um, treatment of the FBI in the courts at the same time we're seeing, you know, very limited oversight from Congress. Um, but, you know, if there is a way of reforming, I mean, I think it is like in some ways we are at this moment that's imperfect, but at a, at a, a time when 
I think people are more skeptical of the FBI than they have been in a very long time. And, and maybe that does introduce an opportunity for some sort of reform, some sort of committee that will take a more um, you know, holistic look at the FBI and its abuses. But I'm not exactly optimistic that's around the corner. I, let's go back to Alphabet Boys. There was a person working at the Chinook Center named Jax, Jacqueline Uzetta, who was um, was at one of the protest protest um, protest things they were having, and I guess she was kind of targeted by the police. They knew who she was because of the informant that was there, and she pushed a bicycle or pushed a, a fence against a bicycle for a policeman never hit the policeman never was arrested and charged with second degree felony assault of a police officer and was looking at 14 years in jail and and we had on a, a attorney called dan cannon who wrote a book called pleading out about how everybody everybody pleads out because when you get to these federal cases you you lose you know, 95% of them are lost and uh, the, they pile on sentences. She had the gumption to say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to plead this out. And she got all of the cams, the uh, police officer cams, and that showed these local police officers looking at the dossiers and looking at all the informants and literally were sitting there in the police cars explaining the whole thing. That uh, tell me how how strange that is that you would have somebody to have the gumption to say I'm not going to plead out and if this thing all blow up in that particular way, um, yeah. So amazing I, story, amazing. It was, yeah. And in my ability to tell the story of April Rogers working as an informant for the FBI or as a as an undercover for the FBI was made possible because of what Jacqueline Armendariz Unsueta did, which is you know the the backstory as you were noting is that. She's just attending this housing march. They were there to arrest a number of other people. And the FBI was used, or the Colorado Springs police working with the FBI was using this program called social media exploitation that the FBI developed. And they go through activists' social media pages. They download photos of them and they create little dossiers of these people who, again, are just using their First Amendment protected rights. And they decided who they were going to, going to arrest. And so as Jacqueline is attending this demonstration, she's walking with her bike on the outside of the demonstration and a, about a half dozen cops in riot gear run toward others that they are planning to arrest. Jacqueline turns around and sees a cop in full riot gear running toward her, startles her and she pushes her bike down. It was in the path of the cop, but I've seen the video. It's a really hard to make the argument that she was trying to assault the cop. And besides the cop just went right around the bike, no problem, never touched him. And they later used social media to track down who Jacqueline was. At first, they didn't know who she was because she was wearing a helmet and she had uh, she had glasses on and it was during the pandemic, so she was wearing a face mask. And um, they find her through social media. They get a search warrant. The search warrant application, which is now part of an ACLU lawsuit, rests almost entirely on First Amendment protected activity for the basis of the search because they were wanting access to her computer devices, which obviously throwing your bike in front of a cop, even if it was a crime, your computers don't have anything to do with that, right? So they come up with this over-the-top search warrant. And to Jacqueline's credit, you know, she was facing a lengthy prison sentence if convicted, and she's a young woman. I mean, this is a life-changing sentence for someone in her position. And, uh, and she fought it, and she asked for all of the body cam footage 
um, to document the charges as part of her discovery. And uh, there was a particular, um, you know, their particular officer named Scott Alamo, who was caught on on body camera discussing the undercover April Rogers and then flipping through these um, these dossiers. And so that that recording revealed not only that the FBI was working with CSPD in this very intrusive social media exploitation data mining program, but also revealed the, the informant involved as well. And, you know, fortunately for Jacqueline, she was able to get a deferred prosecution, I think, in part because CSPD realized they didn't want anyone diving in for, for more records. Um, and, and so she, it did work out for her and she revealed this larger case at play. But I think you're right. I mean, in this, I mentioned this in terrorism prosecutions as well. You know, I, there have been, you know, nearly just, just a, or no, nearly a thousand terrorism international terrorism prosecutions since 9-11. The vast majority plead out. And so you don't get access to discovery. And so the cases that I've written about in the past, as you pointed out, are the tip of the iceberg because we only get access to a small amount of cases that have the full evidence. And so it's it's cases like those, cases like Jacqueline's that make you wonder, like, what government abuses are we not hearing about just because they never see the light of day, in large part because the, the criminal justice system is structured in such a way that it really encourages people to accept plea deals without it, without seeing their full evidence. Unreal, unreal. No, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta uh, implicate the uh, the media, uh, the entertainment media in particular, because they've romanticized the CIA and the FBI in the last, well, I guess since two thousand one. Uh, all these shows are on that you know they're all, and they 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 uh, emphasize the fact that the old C the old FBI profile was a white male Catholic that, that got a law degree from Notre Dame. There were no African Americans, no women, and so forth. But the new FBI agent that's romanticized on television is a woman or is a black is is something else. And so the the uh, the general public's got this image of these very sensitive, very humane people. But the the role of the FBI hasn't changed. And as you mentioned earlier, the budget is still not at criminality. It never was. I mean, Hoover was always criticized because it never went after the mafia, but it's always after um, reinforcing the center. I think one of the things that's new today is there's a crack. I mean, the Pew polls and all the polls show that the security agencies are losing some of the credibility, mainly because it's driven by Republicans, but uh, they are losing that credibility. And the old the old notion was that these security agencies always supported the center, the center left and the center right, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. But that's kind of broken now with the divisions in this country. And so maybe there's some hope. Maybe there's some hope that, well, I don't know. I doubt it. But what do you think? No, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that. I mean, one of the things that's always been curious to me and interesting is that you're right in that the, the FBI in particular has been very good at cultivating Kind of a soft power image as the good guys, the guys in the white hat, right? The number of movies and TV shows that that show the FBI as kind of this flawless agency of good guys is, you know, kind of too numerous to count. Um, but the truth is, you're, they're not like that. And I think one of the goals that we have in Alphabet Boys is by using the undercover recordings to kind of reveal the cynicism of FBI agents, but also this like Keystone Cops aspect too. You know, I I can't tell you the number of cases I've looked at where the FBI informant or the case agent is just a bumbling idiot, right? And and I think like there there's like we, as a culture, I think we've come to assume that the FBI is is very good at you know catching the bad guys. And in truth, like sometimes they're not really catching the bad guys. 
Sometimes they're creating them. Sometimes they're the bad guys themselves. And I think there's this kind of darkly humorous aspect to hearing the recordings and seeing the recordings because you begin to realize that, you know, the FBI guys that you thought you could have trusted or that pop culture told you you should trust, you really shouldn't trust. And maybe they're not that smart after all, uh, which ends up being the truth in, in most cases that I've looked at. Before you came on, Greg and I were talking about your um, your book and in the uh, appendage where you're doing the 10, this is a 10 year anniversary. So the last chapters, you're catching catching up on things. And in the, <laughs> and, and in the book, you mentioned how all of a sudden you're getting increased uh, royalties on this book. And as you're looking at the book, um, it's from conservatives. And Greg noticed that because Greg was reading the reviews of your books. And on these You're reviews were all of these right-wing people saying how wonderful you were. And as it turns out, tell us the story about Tucker Carlson mentioning you and using your book as a um, proof that the FBI was responsible for the January 6th riots, not uh, not the Proud Boys, not everybody else. It was the FBI. Uh, am, am, am I exaggerating a little bit? No, no. It's, it's, so for some quick context of this, when, you know, I, I wrote my book trying not to be ideological in any way. Um, and I think, you know, when, when it, it got a lot of reviews when it first came out, but it really split along ideological lines. I mean, I think uh, liberal publications, you know, wrote mostly favorably about the book. And conservative publications largely ignored it or wrote critically, the most critical of which was the Wall Street Journal, which, you know, panned the book, which kind of gives you an idea of what the, the tenor of the political climate was at the time related to my book. And so you fast forward then 10 years and January 6th happens. And, you know, as you, as you may remember, there have been like numerous conspiracy theories about January 6th. The first, of course, was like, it was Antifa, it was Antifa, right? And that didn't work out. And then the second one that came to hold was Tucker Carlson coming up with this idea that there was an informant involved in January 6th and that this was like a sting operation. And so before he was fired by Fox News, he he did a show with a monologue about, you know, that the FBI, that January 6th was basically an inside job. And his only proof was my book. And he's basically like Trevor Aronson documented how all of these cases involving Muslims were set up by the FBI. And so looks like that happened again, was basically his argument, even though there was no proof at all to show that, you know, the FBI was involved in orchestrating January 6th. And even if you are receptive to that idea, the, 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 the notion that the FBI could somehow corral hundreds of people into doing what they did on January 6th is really hard to believe, right? If you look at sting operations that I document, it's one, two, three, maybe four people at most involved in these plots. It's not hundreds of people like January 6th. Uh, but I mean, I guess I should thank Tucker Carlson because, you know, I ended up getting a bunch of book sales as a result. And the, <laughs> the strange thing is if you read my Amazon reviews, the more recent reviews tend to be conservatives who are praising the book. Um, and I, I do, and I, I do find it really frustrating in a sense because uh, you know, just to give you an idea, um, a couple of months ago, Dinesh D'Souza, the, the right-wing propagandist, right. contacted me and wanted to interview me about, you know, cases involving Muslims and FBI setups. And to me, it's like frustrating because like you only want to interview me now because it supports your conspiracies about the FBI. But like 10 years ago, you didn't care about Muslims being entrapped. I mean, you were probably cheering on these cases, right? And, you know, it just it just shows kind of the bizarre world we live in. You know, and you, you can also like I, I also you can also see 
you know, as a journalist kind of looking at as this is happening, you can see, you know, how some journalists kind of get swept up into this world where like if they write things that like right wing media really like, they get kind of, you know, echoed up, up and they, you know, they make money and they their profile goes up and there's this kind of feedback loop that happens. And it was like my first window into that, like if I started to write which I wouldn't, but if you start to, if you, if you, if you say, I don't want to be intellectually honest anymore, I'm going to write about how the FBI is screwing the right all the time. You know, you get on Fox news and that you get elevated very quickly and you can kind of see how the right wing media echo chamber really works in a situation like that. Even though, you know, in the case of Tucker Carlson's conspiracy theory, it's not moored in reality or fact in any way. Well, uh, yes, a, yes, and no. I mean, there were there FBI agents. Well, sure. the there, yeah, there, there were FBI uh, informants. Yeah, but the idea that they were, they the 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 idea that they were somehow responsible for January sixth happening. I mean, there's been no proof of that whatsoever. And I also think you know it's worth noting too that it's still questionable, like what the use of the informants were in January sixth. You know, during the Proud Boys trial, for example, the informants who were inside the Proud Boys testified. That the FBI was interested in Antifa, right? Like the FBI wanted to know what the Proud Boys knew about Antifa, not what was happening inside the Proud Boys. So I think the existence of informants within right-wing groups does not necessarily mean they are acting to, you know, investigate those groups, as the Proud Boys case showed. I, we have to be careful here, I think, Trevor. I, I you know, I, I have a confession. I, uh, no one prepares for these interviews like pat does pat sends me so much material i'm overwhelmed you know he studies all everything you've ever written pat's probably read i haven't so i cheat a little bit i went to the the reviews on amazon he mentioned earlier and i and you're right i mean i'm reading through these reviews and they're all praising your book and then it comes well i hope he also cares about january 6th or you know some reference to some right-wing cause i was kind of shocked by it but it made me pause because we can't have it both ways. You can't argue that this was a coup or a coup attempt. This was an organized, tightly conceived, Trump was behind this kind of thing. And also acknowledge, which we know that the FBI had to have some, some informants in there, and yet nothing was done. I mean, it can't be both ways. And it is troubling, but you know, I, I agree with you. As polarized as things are in this country today, you know, you're a reporter. You can't be drug into these these battles, but I think it's true. I think the FBI, I mean, there were National Guard people literally within walking distance in an armory, and they were not called in by Pelosi. Uh, uh, she was able to do that. Capitol Police were under her control. Those of us that have been on demonstrations on the left never get close to the White House, you know, and then we see the Capitol Police forces that are array against this. There's no way anyone's going to do this. So you know, there's reason for 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 some skepticism about the FBI's role in this. It's wrong to think they planned it. I don't think they planned it. I don't think they they were the they were the people that instigated it. But they didn't act. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to lean more toward the assumption that it was just gross incompetence. You know, I mean, David Bowditch, the assistant director at the time, told Congress that you know they were prepared for what was happening. You know, a lot of the planning that went on in January 6th happened out in the open. These were Facebook groups that were accessible to the public. And so the idea that they wouldn't have known, I, I tend to think it's more likely that, you know, and this is true, even I think if the Jim Jordans of the world don't want to admit that, that that the FBI 
as is the case with most law enforcement agencies, tends to attract people who are politically more conservative than liberal. Just as in the media, media tends to attract people who are politically more liberal than conservative. Not always, but on the whole, I think that's a that's a decent you know uh, assumption. And I, I think for the most part, um, what what what's happened is that the FBI saw you know the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, and they saw the violence leading up to January sixth, but they just underestimated the pattern that they were seeing because I think they tended to you know be more sympathetic to their political cause than to say the racial justice movement's political cause, which they saw as much much more sinister than um, than the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys going into it. And so I think it's the incompetence has allowed, you know, these conspiracy theories to take root because there is this idea is like, well, how could they not have done this, right? How did they not see this coming? Um, but that said, you know, like as with anything, we don't know what we don't know. And, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm certainly willing to keep an open mind about it, but I have not seen any evidence to, you know, persuade me that the government was in any way directly involved with January 6th or whatever the, the current conspiracy theories are. Well, you need to start uh, listening to Newsmax more and get your get your facts straight. So, you know, but well, it, it reminds me of um, I'm a big Matt Taibbi fan. I've been I've read every one of his books. I subscribe to his blog. I've been. And when he did these Twitter files, the fact that he was attacked by the Democrats. If, if you look at really what his reporting was, his reporting is pretty shocking that the government is in collusion with powerful forces to shadow ban, you know, social media. Um, but uh, we had Ruth Ben Giat on, who's a specialist on um, on strongmen and fascism, and 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 we mentioned. Uh, Matt Taibbi, and she just immediately dismissed him as uh, he's just a Putin puppet. He's a he's a you know megaphone for Putin. He's you know so it it it's tough when these when you, when a journalist gets kind of hijacked by these other forces that want to push them into certain you know opinions. yeah I, I agree. you know it's tough it's tough so yeah I mean I, I agree I mean there's been there's a lot of reactionaryism happening in general. Um, and I think that's that was the case with the Twitter files. I mean, I do think, you know, I, I think in in some ways the Twitter files were a little overblown. I think some of the reporting was questionable. Um, I also think, you know, that by nature you're basically colluding with Elon Musk, and so he's not he's a source in a very different kind of way. You know, this is a source like ch traditionally the sources I deal with are looking to provide information because they want greater disclosure and they want public reforms. I don't think that was necessarily Elon Musk's motivations, and so I think. The transparency about the source motivation is important. I don't think that played a significant role mm -hmm. in the in the in the writing and the reporting, including by Taibbi. Um, that said, though, you know the the idea that like it's not a story that political parties and the White House are telling Twitter what to remove and not to remove. You know, it is right. It's a great story. You yeah. know, the, the irony yeah. being that like the Twitter or X that exists today you know, is probably worse in that regard than the one that Elon Musk was trying to to expose through through Matt Taibbi and other journalists. Yeah, I saw a Tesla with a bumper sticker that said, I bought this, I bought this car before I knew that Elon Musk was a dick. <laughs> it was a little, little, little caveat in the, in the, in the back now. What are you working on next, Trevor? Um, so I, I'm, I'm hoping to develop future seasons of Alphabet Boys. It probably will be, so our third season probably will be next year. Um, so I, I'm working on that. And I also write for The Intercept with some regularity. So I've got a couple of stories in the hopper that I'm working on for, for them. But I'm still, you know, 
as with all my other work, you know, and if you would have asked me 15 years ago, if I'd still be doing this, I would have said no, but somehow like this intersection of national security and civil liberties and, and the FBI um, is, is a really important story. And so I'm just trying to do my best to, to stay on it and also attack it from a place that I don't think other journalists are, are writing from. Well, Greg, I'll give you some advice. Get ready for your FBI files. You'll have to be, uh, I'm sure you're, I'm sure you're on a list somewhere, right? Don't you think, Greg? Yeah, I think he has. He has a number. They, they have, <laughs> I have two numbers. I actually have more than two numbers because referring back to what you said earlier, they're incompetence. They identify me at a meeting as a Greg, but they had no no last name. L-N-U, they call it. No no last known. Last name unknown, name. yeah. Yeah. So that's on the file. So I've got multiple numbers, but uh, yeah, you probably have a number. Maybe it's best you not know it, but uh, <laughs> I acquired you know, they had a 100 number, which I think is a, I, I was a domestic red, but then they had a 105, which means I, I traveled overseas, I think. I've never been able to figure out what the 105 meant, but I'm I wear those proudly. I think anyone that has right. one could wear it. And they, uh, they, 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 you know, when you're, when you're my age and you look back and you're going back to a time when you acquired these, these numbers, you knew you were, you know, in fact, that you were under surveillance. You have to wonder how your life was made different by that. And I think that's something that some people, oh, so what? They were invest they investigate everybody, blah, blah, blah. I didn't do anything. I never broke any laws. I'm the guy that gets mad when somebody runs a red light in front of my house. But I have no idea what that meant in terms of the twists and turns in my life, the fact that the FBI was watching me and viewed me as a subversive. It's something to think about. Yeah, you know, yeah I, I mentioned that to people a lot, actually, because, you know, what I've had agents tell me in, in the context of the counterterrorism or the war on terror is that really the FBI's ultimate goal in the use of informants and sting operations is to create a hostile environment for terrorists, right? Their idea is that by arresting all these people, by creating suspicion of informants, that you can, a real terrorist will be like, well, I don't know if I want to work with that guy because he might be an informant. And so it just mucks up the work, right? The same idea went when they investigated the mafia, you know, they were looking to recruit informants so that the mafiosi would be like, well, who's who's working with the feds, who's not? And it just, it just you know, wears down the ability for these organizations to function. And the same goes for political movements, right? Like they're part of their goal in infiltrating, whether it's right-wing militias or the racial justice movement is not only to infiltrate them, but to create a feeling among the people there that they are being infiltrated because that will, you know, cause them to not be as functional as they otherwise would be. And that's probably the FBI's primary goal, which I, I agree with you, I think is sometimes very much underestimated that the cases you hear about are kind of the byproduct of the ultimate goal, which is to create a hostile environment for people to, you know, do the things that they're hoping to do. This has been fun. I wish we could just talk all afternoon, but we got to got to let you go and thank you so much i'm going to link to your uh, ted talk which is a, probably how you should start by getting to know you uh and your book and subscribe to these uh the podcast you're on your third season i i can hardly wait when your episodes are released i immediately put on my headphones and go for a walk and enjoy enjoy your podcast so I'm glad to see you and Rachel Maddow are using that format effectively with the telling stories. So great. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you Thanks. very much. Keep the good okay. work up. Thank you so much. Take care.